Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Hanif Abdurraqib. Hanif is a poet, essayist, and cultural critic from Columbus, Ohio. His first collection of poems, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, was released by Button Poetry in 2016, and his first collection of essays, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, is forthcoming from $2 Radio in winter 2017. The Crown Ain't Worth Much both charts Hanif's youth in Columbus, where he now lives again, and confronts the city's changing landscape as places he knew fall victim to decay, gentrification, and the natural evolutions of modern cities. He told me that he was inspired to write the book when it struck him, listening to Kendrick Lamar's album about growing up in Compton, Good Kid, Mad City, that the middle of the country didn't have the same kind of defining narratives that the coast did, particularly for young black people. The Crown Ain't Worth Much combines Hanif's talent for poetry, which is urgent and emotional, with his enthusiasm for pop culture, which is effusive and wide-ranging. His essays also pull from the personal and the pop cultural, considering song lyrics and larger historical contexts and making connections across a dizzying menu of ideas. In this conversation alone, we cover everything from Fleetwood Mac to Ric Flair, sneaker collections to colonization. We also talk about the erasure of memory, writing as a physical act, and why Hanif believes the best poets are in black barbershops. I had to dive into experience and memory with the knowing that when I climbed out of the poem, that memory might be all I have left of a place or a person or a time. I thought that we actually might want to start by talking about your home because it's so prominent in so much of your work. Do you want to maybe start by you know talking about what your experience in Columbus was like growing up, what your childhood was like? So I, I am the youngest of four children, and I, and I grew up on the uh, east side of Columbus, which now, today, uh, is a lot different than um, what it was when I was young, although I, I think a lot of parts of the interior of my childhood neighborhood are kind of unchanged, except for the fact that they are um, perhaps a little more uh, neglected than they once were. You know, the court, the basketball court, for example, where I used to play basketball with my friends, um, is just unkempt now and, and no one really put, you know, every time I go by it, there's like no one playing on it because the rims are bent and the cord is uneven and cracked. Um, but the exterior, the surrounding parts of the neighborhood I grew up uh, is, is kind of being swallowed by uh, the two suburbs on each side of it. Um, there's a suburb uh, called Bexley and a suburb called Whitehall, and they're kind of uh, expanding into each other and swallowing parts of the um, the streets I knew and, 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 um, you know, it, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, I, I think there's a historical aspect to gentrification that doesn't exactly get talked about or, or a generational aspect. And, um, it is, um, geographical and physical, but it's also about the erasure of memory. Um, and it's also about the erasure of, uh, touchable artifacts for people who grew up in a place or loved the place. Um, but in, in, in part, in part, that's why I write about where I'm from a lot, um, as an archive, but also because I, you know, I loved growing up in, in Columbus. I, um, loved the experiences I had uh, growing up on the East side of Columbus, um, you know, with, in a, in a, in a neighborhood. And I think that when we talk about neighborhoods, um, we often get this very white and like projected idea, like this white projected and like Hollywood-esque idea of a neighborhood. Um, and I lived in like a mostly black neighborhood and, and there were kids my age on, on my streets. You know, I played with kids my age and like it was a very, we grew up together, you know, um, we went to high school together. It was it's very community-based in a lot of ways that I that I really admire. That's really interesting, the point you make about erasure and gentrification. I live in Detroit now, but I'm not from here. Uh, my husband got a job here in 2013, so he moved here from New York. And, you know, so there is there is clearly a lot of gentrification going on in Detroit right now. But, um, you know, I had this conversation once with a kind of lifelong Detroiter that it seemed to me that sometimes the word gentrification was getting used to what seemed to me a little bit out of place because it's it would be develop a case of development where like nothing was there where you know like a building was empty or something and right. she was like yeah but I mean you don't you don't see like the ghosts of what used to be there and and that stuff's not there anymore and I think that's such a hard thing to wrestle with because you do have to adapt and you have to change but like you also don't want to 
throw everything out. Right. Yeah. And, and I and I think there's a way to do that. I think there's a way to, um, you know, develop and perhaps um, enhance and expand into places um, without erasing or removing people who were there before. Right. Or without making their um, lives more difficult to live, you know, without, you know, there was a fight and I think it's still ongoing in Columbus where, um, you know, a homeless shelter was going to be torn down to build apartments. And I think it was so stunning to me that 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 was arrived at with, you know, that was a conclusion that was arrived at with no thinking behind it. I, you know, America, I think, has such a kind of contempt of poor people. And we never Absolutely. really think about that in terms of city planning when it's like integral to city planning, like to the history of city planning. Yeah, it's poor people. And it's just like a lack of awareness, you know, and I think it's a lack of like, um, for, for all of our part, I think there's a lack of understanding that none of this land is our land and none of this land is um, land that we Yes, I say we and me and the entire lineage of we. Um, none of this land is, is land that we got honest. Um, and so how do we, now that we have come to that conclusion, that conclusion that is um, unchangeable, can't change the fact that this is this is not land that um, whatever forefathers of forefathers we might have had, um, you know, got honestly, um, and and we can't erase the fact that this is, is land that there are many people who did not come here willingly, right? Um, and, and so when you have those two unassailable facts that we can't not we can't unshake ourselves from, then the question has to be: How do we best honor the land now that we are here? And I think in talks of gentrification, we we forget that part too. The part that that part of um, you know this isn't we're living here, but this isn't ours. We are. And so, um, the contempt for the poor, it rolls into that. Right. Because like colonization and all that, um, it was, yeah. I mean, contempt for the poor, it falls in line with the American lineage of, of moving in and swallowing and taking over. Um, and that's that's zooming out of, of gentrification very far, obviously. <laughs> that's like zooming out to a much a much larger thing. Um, but that's a part of it. That's that's another I mean it's a layered conversation and that, that conversation that part of the conversation, people don't often get to that layer because there are so many other layers that are um, surface level pain points that also need to be kind of leaned into. Yeah, that's a really nice way to put that. Absolutely, I agree. Well, going back to your writing, when did you kind of start seeing those changes and feeling the need to to put them to paper, if you even realized that that's why you were putting them to paper at first? I don't know if I realized it at first. So The Crown Ain't Worth Much um, began as like 14 poems. And I think of the 14 poems, only like half of them are in the, the, the actual book now. But they were largely about my moving through the world, the, the Columbus world in, uh, growing up in it, you know? Um, and I had, I had been listening to, this is a roundabout answer to, to your question and I apologize in advance. Um, but I had been listening to good kid, Matt city, the Kendrick Lamar album, um, incessantly. And I had started to think about the idea about how we have all these great, uh, coastal narratives. We have the like great Compton narrative and we have the great, you know, New York narrative. We have the great even Jersey narrative, you know, I'm a big Springsteen nerd. Um, and so we have this great fantastical Jersey narrative of like labor and romance and escape. And it, it's, it dawned on me that there, um, in, in Chicago aside, of course, I don't want to, Lord knows I can't, uh, say anything disparaging about Chicago in any public forum without getting several text messages from several Chicagoans. <laughs> um, so Chicago side, I, I think the middle of the country narrative, particularly for young black people, was not very existent. And so I thought to myself, I mean, Good Kid, Mad City um, is pretty fictional in in nature, right? Like Good Kid, Mad City is this like. Um, kind of semi nonfiction, like semi nonfiction about Kendrick Lamar's 
uh, growing up in Compton. Um, and so I wanted to do that. I had this concept of, of this small chapbook of poems that would be this um, loose fiction based off of a character that could be me um, with experiences like I had, you know, an experience growing up uh, on the east side of Columbus, uh, experience like losing his mother. Um, and I want to say that some of those poems are, of course, speaking directly to my experience. I mean, the third section uh, at the time I, I was... Um, preparing for marriage. And there are a lot of poems in that third section that are grappling with the nervousness I felt through that process. So what happens throughout the the book is that it gets more personal as the sections go on. But I wanted to craft a great kind of a Midwestern narrative of a young Black person growing up in the middle of the country. And I also want to do it while making a city, giving Columbus Columbus more as less of geography and more as a character. I wanted Columbus to be a character in this story. Uh, I wanted it to be a living, breathing entity that people could touch and, and feel a city that could be any city that they've ever been, uh, they've ever been to. And so, um, yeah, I mean, as, as the manuscript got fleshed out and it got fleshed out because I submitted to Button Poetry's chapbook competition and I, I came in, I think second or, you know, they, and they reached out. I didn't win. Dennis Smith won and, um, they're great. So, you know, of course they won. Um, and button button reached out and asked me if I wanted to, um, make it a full length book. And I had some more work that I, you know, we had been working on in the, in the time in between submission and hearing back. Um, and so I did not realize I was writing this kind of, um, long book of poems about the generational impacts of gentrification until, I inserted the poems about in in the voice of my barber. Those came towards the end of the process. Those four poems, there's one in each section. um, They tied together the narrative in a way because it gave the book a narrator. It gave the book someone who was living. It gave the book a real character who was pointing at the changes happening in the city around him. Um, And I think the book without those four poems is a very different book. When you get to that first one, you know, there are a lot of different kind of forms that you play with in the book, but but it's written so especially urgently. I don't want to, I feel like the book is full of urgency, so I don't mean to kind of create some kind of comparison in that way, but you're just, it's very striking when you first come across it. Like, it's like you're, someone is speaking to you directly. Yeah, and I wanted to, and I'm glad you said, I mean, a lot of people say that that's the thing with the Barbara poems is like, urgency, urgency, urgency. And I, and I, I get it because I wanted to create that feeling. You know, I mean, there's a lot of poems in the book that play with um, loose or no punctuation. Um, but with those poems, I really want to kind of cram them together and make them feel somewhat breathless in a way. And I do want to say that that is in the voice of an actual Barbara that I had. Um you know, that's that's like a real barber um, who really sp- spoke in that manner, spoke frantically and breathlessly. And in, in, um, did he is his the phrase? Um, I'm not I'm not giving anybody a reason to wear my face on a T-shirt. Yeah, I thought that was so amazing. Uh, I think the best poets are in black barber shops, and they don't know it. You know, what I mean, they're just like these old heads who who will talk about anything rapid fire at, at any. You know what I mean? And and. I wanted to take advantage of that and, and introduce um, a character into this into this idea into this like um, book that in some ways without that single character maybe wouldn't feel grounded or wouldn't feel personal. I wanted people to I wanted people to to point at a person and say, "Wow, that's a person who's losing everything as this book goes on," and I feel something about that. And his shop is really close. His shop, the last the last of those poems. Again, it was a real interaction. I went to his shop uh, uh, the night before it closed down and we talked. And I think that as someone who, during much of the writing of this book, did not live in Columbus, Ohio, I wanted to honor the city by really committing to writing about it and not doing it as someone who, you know, moved away and had no framework for it anymore. And so I wanted to bring in. I did not want to erase the voices who were living through the moment. And um, as someone who who also was living through the moment before I left, uh, it, it felt like I had a little more agency to, to stretch my legs. 
I write about place a lot as well. And I write about Appalachia. And I feel like for me, I couldn't really get a vantage point until I left. And, and I wonder if you felt, if you feel now, like maybe that distance kind of needed to be there. Yeah, the distance was vital. I think the distance was vital because when you're writing about, um, a changing city and, uh, and, you know, honestly, if I'm being frank, writing that the book was traumatic for me because I had to dive into experience and memory and know with the knowing that when I climbed out of the poem, um, that memory might be all I have left of a place or a person or a time um, because I can't go back to some of the geography in the book and say, well, here's this punk club I used to go to and it's still here, you know? And so the distance was good because I didn't have to immediately emotionally answer for all those things I was creating. I didn't have to, I was speaking into the world and building the world and I didn't have to answer for the world responding to me. I was building the city as I loved it most, and I didn't have to be in the city as I as it no longer was. And that was really vital for, for me to, to get an understanding of how to write about distance from a distance. You do write with such emotional rawness and resonance, and it, it feels to me as someone who's slightly afraid of emotion and trying to figure out how to write in a way that is less fearful of emotion, um, that it could be really difficult to sit with in the process. And I wondered if you could talk about kind of how you dance with that. It is difficult. So I am um, a big disciple of uh, the poet Vivi Francis, who um, I think it was last summer. I was at Kalalu last summer um, and Vivi talked about, um, setting your table before you enter a poem, you know, um, putting like literally setting a table, right? Like putting things on for me, I write at a desk. So like putting things on a desk that will kind of, um, you know, it's like the movie inception, isn't it? Where it's like, um, you know, they had the thing where like their totem or whatever, where they came out of the dream and they would touch the thing that would make them, you know, kind of jar them back to life. Um, I set up small totems on my desk, things I love, things that will pull me back out of a poem. Um, oh, so it's I for the getting out, not the not the getting in. Yeah, it's always, for me at least, right? For me, I, I, it's always about getting out. For me, getting into the poem, I'm, I'm, I wake up into the poem, right? Like I'm in, I am, I am operating, I think I owe it to myself and the people around me um, to always be operating at an emotional awareness that allows me to always be into the poem. Um, if, if by the poem we mean like every moment of, of living, which isn't to say that everything we do is a poem, but I'm saying that like I am, I'm operating at a level that will always allow me to step into a poem from an emotional standpoint. I am never operating at a level that will um, allow me to crawl out of a poem once I'm in it. I mean, I am, The Crown Ain't Worth Much was, I, I don't say this to be dramatic, I, I, The Crown Ain't Worth Much was oftentimes devastating to work on. Um, and, you know, there are poems in there about friends committing suicide and there are poems in there about, um, and I had, I, I was, I had that, I carried that, I carried a lot of that. It sits, um, it lives underneath your skin, I think in a way, um, even after you exit the poem. And so, yeah, I'm never on my desk. I keep pictures of friends, you know, on my desk, I keep, um, whatever, like, sorbet I've been eating that I love um you know I keep things nearby so that when I need to crawl out of a poem it is a little that the world is not um crumbling around me as much as as it could be there's something kind of welcoming you back yeah I mean and and sometimes I think it's I think it is urgent for especially young writers who um are perhaps in this lineage of of writing emotional work um, I think it's okay to, to exit a poem even if the poem is not finished. I think it's okay to exit a poem and then re-enter it when your body tells you it's okay to re-enter it. I, I don't believe in suffering for the work anymore, um, which I used to. I used to, I mean, I, I feel um, writing The Crown ain't worth much. I used to take pride in the fact that this was hard and, and I suffered in emotionally... Um, 
did a lot of damage, I think. Um, and I think what, uh, if there's any great lesson I learned from this first book, and I'm proud of it, and I am honored by the fact that it has been um, so well received by people. Um, but I, I am less interested today in how much I can suffer for my art. And I am more, I'm more interested in how I can healthily approach being the best artist I can be while also holding myself accountable to, you know, a, a mindset that will allow me to keep creating. Exactly. I think, I mean, I, and I think part of that is maturing as an artist. I think there is a very, a very sexy idea of this, of this kind of tortured soul. Like I was, I just wrote, I, I was about to say this and I was like, this is the douchiest thing that anyone's ever said. I just wrote a <laughs> tiny letter, but I did actually just no, write tiny letters are great. It's not douchey at all. <laughs> tiny letters are phenomenal. Okay. I'm going to read it. Okay. You've absolved me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, about this, uh, this saying that I got from a professor in grad school that I've had on my desk, like literally the same piece of paper that I wrote it on then when I was like 23, like 10 years ago. And it's like the struggle and the process is important, not the product. You will never be satisfied with the product. And like, I talk in the tiny letter about how my relationship to that, how I've, how the way I've defined that has changed. And when I was young, like it was all about just like, Oh my God, cause you're just going to be disappointed forever because the work is so amazing and elusive. And you know, you're just, it's so, it's so captivating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's romantic. And I grew up, um, at least during a lot of my formative years, like my late teens, early twenties, I was, um, really heavy into the like pop punk and emo scenes. And, and I just think that that is a part of the ethos, right? That's a part of like, um, you know, um, emo band guy suffers for his art is just the, the like, and I, and I was immersed in that. And I, I think that, um, the, the work can be hard and you can still survive it. Right. Um, I am, I think I am writing work now that is hard and emotionally difficult, but I don't feel like I am suffering. I feel like I am cleansing a part of me that I, I had left ignored. Right. Um, it's like finding a new part of yourself. Um, I'm really into sneakers and, um, you know what I always used to love because I, this, this is going to sound terrible, not tiny letter, um, <laughs> because I have a lot of sneakers. Um, I, I really enjoy the art of like going back deep into the closet and finding that old pair. I haven't worn in a year and cleaning it off and making that pair white again and putting it on like it's brand new. Um, and that is what I feel in my head. That is what is happening with the work I'm doing now. It feels less like I am drowning you know, it feels less like I'm drowning and more like just a good bath. <laughs> right. There's something, the way you described that also, um, I don't know if this feels like it in the moment, but there's a, there's a very kind of ritualistic quality of that, of just like feeling maybe more, not in control in a like clubbing the work over the head kind of way, but just like, you know, playing more of an active role in sort of managing what's happening. Yeah. I wanted to be responsible. I wanted to be responsible, um, to both like myself and the people who maybe read my work or like listen to me talk about my work in, uh, I want people to understand that I am, that it is not like that, like suffering is not the ultimate goal. I, I even, even when I felt like I did suffer and I, I do, I say all of this to say that writing the crown at worth much was one of the, like finishing with the crown at worth much was the proudest achievement of my life as an artist period. There was not, I've never been more thrilled and I'm not saying that, like, I just wept for, you know, a year and a half and then, like, a book arrived. Um, but I am, you know, always looking at new ways to um, uh, yeah, to exit the work and new ways to care for the work while I'm inside of it. How do you approach that in terms of the aesthetic quality of a poem? Like, do you have to kind of write it and get and then get a little distance from it to be able to then look at it and think about like the shape you want it to take and like what you want it to look like on the page and that sort of aspect of it. Not really. Only I, I'm pretty much a, a foot now when I, I, when I am like really in a zone, especially now, now that it's like easier for me to exit the poem. Um, I, I kind of like try to do a start to finish thing. I really try to like, um, 
determine through the writing process um, the way the poem should look, the way the poem should sound out loud. Um, and so I really try to get all that. And of course, like I have an editing process and of course I have peers who look at my work. Um, but aesthetically, um, I have learned or gotten very good at um, understanding the aesthetic qualities of the poem as I'm writing it. Like I, I believe, and this is going to sound a little weird, um, but I wholly believe that the work will tell you what it wants to do. The work will tell you how it wants to live, how it wants to look, how it wants to sound. Um, and I, I edit, I edit led by the work, you know, um, I, I, which isn't to say that this is the answer, but for me, um, I don't necessarily massage and massage and massage the work. I really let the work tell me what it wants to do. Um, I mean, I think those barbershop poems were a good example. Those were broken up so differently when I first wrote them and reading them out loud, the work told me that it wanted to, it wanted to run, you know, the work told me that it wanted to be on a straightaway instead of going in circles. Is that another part of, uh, not suffering so much as not fighting that or learning how learning to recognize that as something that, you know, you shouldn't resist. Yeah. I mean, and I think it, for me, it was a heavy, it was a humility thing, right. Because I wanted to, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I, I think a lot of people want to treat the work like it's a pet or you can tell it what to do. Um, when really I, I think because I'm so tethered to, the emotional side of the work as it as it comes out of me, right? I'm so tethered to it as a like as a fully emotional expression. I trust it. I had to learn to trust it. I had to learn to trust myself, and I had to learn to trust what I was feeling. I had to learn to trust what I was putting on the page, and in doing that, I had to trust the work to tell me how it wanted to look, and and you know to tell me like if a line isn't isn't you know isn't happening. And I, and I say this to say that I still have you know, peer review, I'd say I still send my work to my friends and tell them to, yeah, I mean, it's not like I'm just sitting there, like, throwing pages in the air and then, like, seeing what comes down. I mean, I still have a rig, I have a rigorous, like, uh, peer group who, you know, is very kind enough to look at my work, but... Um, what was that I, process of, of learning the trust? I think that I um, realized early on that I was working with um, this really rigid understanding of what a poem should look like because I got into poems late. It bears saying I got into poems very late when compared to my peers. I got into poems around like 2011 um, and did not know how to write poems and did not know how to structure poems. And so uh, I took all this time and read and read and read um, and I realized I had this really rigid understanding of what a poem should be, and I was trying to adhere to that. Um, but so many of the poets I loved, you know, so many of my direct peers, so many uh, people like Nate Marshall and uh, Safia Ahil and Aziza Barnes and Danette Smith, so many of these people were not adhering to what we believed a poem should look or sound or feel like. Um, and so it took really looking inward and, and saying, okay, I could just just keep, you know, trucking with this, like, this thing I picked up in a book, or I could really give over, give myself over to, you know, I want my poems to look on a page as exciting as I can make them sound out loud, or as exciting as they can sound out loud. Sometimes I don't make them sound exciting at all. Um, but as, you know, I think of, I think of the poem as an instrument, Right. And I know that the, the whole thing with me is that I'm very music, you know, music inclined. But I do. I think of the poem as an instrument. I think of the poem as uh, I, I think the best band leaders, I think the Coltrane's and I think the, 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 the you know, the, the, the great jazz band leaders knew when not to play. And I think um, when I started thinking about poems in that respect, when I started thinking about myself as um a band leader and not as every single person in the band, right? Um, then I, I think the poems really started to move for me in a better way where really you're just directing, you're lightly directing someone who already knows their instrument better than you do. 
and so that's that's kind of the approach I started taking to poems. I really just started gently nudging a line or gently nudging an image or gently nudging a structure on the page and letting it fall into place or let it let it tell me I want to go here. Um, there are there are poems in the Crown Ain't Worth Much that are hybrids of other poems that that you know like I put two poems next to each other and I I saw something that I would have never seen. I saw a line that was telling me it needed to go to this other poem, and that's just I think a part of it. That's a part of the process. Um, but when I started to think of um, how to structure poems as as a band leader, as a musician, and not as a an uh, architect of literature, uh, I think I became more comfortable. And so, so when you talk about the other people who know their instruments and you just kind of helping them, you're you're thinking of that kind of as just almost like other like parts of your brain that have it figured out, and you just kind of need to like get it communicated. Yeah, and that's and that's what it really is, right? Like that, I, that every so if I'm writing a poem, there are parts of my brain that I am like really firing into that lead to this finished product that. Um, may not make a lot of sense to me looking at it on a in a word doc but really allowing my skepticism to get out of the way and just let the let the horn player play his solo you know uh that has um i think made my work and 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 i want to say too there are people who give me permission to write you know who i love um in and I have to shout her out because we we never actually met, but her work is so vital to the permission it gives me. I, have you ever read Angela Veronica Wong? I have not. I love her work, and I love that she. Um, I mean, she's one of my most major influences because, if for no other reason, um, she asks questions inside of her poems, and and they're always they're like rhetorical sometimes, and sometimes they're like you're supposed to know the answer and you don't know it, and so she and she drops in these like conversational. My nature is to write as I speak because I love I love Zora Neale Hurston who wrote as Black people spoke, um, and so my nature is to write like I am in conversation, and I love Angela Veronica Wong's poems because. Um, she's so unafraid to drop conversational tidbits in her poems. Like in the middle of a poem, she'll be like, she'll ask questions to the reader as if it's an audience. Like, isn't that weird? You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or like, doesn't that seem odd? And I was like, why can't I do this? Right. This is exactly how I talk. Uh, and, and so that's, you know, it's it's a mixture of all those things. It's a mixture of letting, letting go and letting my brain, the other parts of my brain, play the solos that I know they know how to play. And it's, it's getting permission from other poets to, to tell me like, you can do this. This is actually a, a poem too. You need someone pointing at something that doesn't look like a bird and saying that too is a bird. I don't know if you agree with this, but it seems like this is a really good moment for music writing. And in general, I think for, for like really well executed intellectualizing of pop culture and not to say that there that pop culture is just vapid and you know by definition like can't be intellectualized but like i feel like the internet is like this is like the perfect moment and vessel for stuff like that that is like a long read but is like very fresh and very knowing but like very deeply thought and felt oh absolutely yeah i mean i think people love because so many of us love to consume pop culture, it makes sense that that um, people enjoy writing that allows allow will allows for them to see themselves existing inside of pop culture as more than something as a vapid, you know, disposable thing, which it's not. I, th- I think, you know, I think popular. I think pop culture is important, and I think um, so. I, I get. I. I um, have a, a weird and very intense following among uh, One Direction fans. Um, and it's because uh, last year, I think mid last year, early last year, I wrote this long form piece about Zayn Malik and his identity um, as Muslim and how it plays into um, his work and how it's kind of important identity wise. And it didn't really shower a lot of praise on One Direction, the band. But it, the reason that all these One Direction fans um, have have always been, I think, uh, really enthusiastic about me, it's odd. One of them 
one of them offered to marry me on the internet last week, and that was weird. Imagine what that person does to One Direction. Yeah, really? Like, yeah, I'm just like a, a, a dude who wrote a thing, and they're like, let's get married tonight. Um, I, but I think an important thing is that, like, when you are a fan, when you're young, especially, and you're a fan of a band, and you watch people, music critics and, like, people who are older than you and with a platform, just disregard that band and treat it like it doesn't matter. For someone, for anyone, to write anything remotely serious and caring about that band probably means the world to you. I remember being young. I remember being young and loving pop music and having to hear about how it was all stupid. And I don't ever want to be that person, right? The music that young people love is important. Um, And I don't think, one, I don't think there has to be a distance between that and the music that that I love as a, like, as an older millennial, right? Um, There's not, there doesn't have to be a a disconnect between that. Um, but, But I also think young music fans are important in how much they care about the music they love, even if sometimes it manifests itself in like not great ways. Um, the way that young people care about the music they love is really important and really speaks to a type of excitement and energy that I still hope to feel about music when I am 60 or 70. Um, and so I really am committed to writing about pop culture and writing about pop music in a way that takes all angles of it seriously and doesn't treat it like it doesn't matter. Um, because I was young once and a fan of, I was young once and a fan of many things, you know, uh, and, and not all of them were taken seriously. And it feels bad when people who are older than you and have a platform, you know, I remember like, being so excited about like when rap was in its shiny suit phase, when rap was like Puff Daddy and Mace wearing shiny suits, um, that, that phase meant a lot to me. You know, my mother died in the summer when that blew up and that was like an escape for me seeing like these music videos with bright lights. And it was just a good way to exit grief. And I remember like seeing reviews just, tearing it apart. I remember like running to get a source magazine and opening it to like a review of, a, of an album that I was excited about. Like, I think it was like Mace's second album and seeing it just get torn apart. And yeah, that's a critical fine. That's whatever. But no one, there was no other side of that. There was no one saying like, this is important for young people and here's why. Um, and so I'm, I, I do want to write about pop culture in a way that opens the door wide enough for everyone who cares about it to get in get into a room and bring someone they love with them. One thing that I read when I was prepping for our discussion that was like particularly resonant to me was the piece that you just wrote about Chris Cornell, because I seem to remember, I think, were you born in 1983? I was. Right. Okay. So, so was I. Um, I also have like, like what you described about watching that video. Like I remember vividly seeing that video for the first time and it's just like, just kind of to everything you're saying, like I wasn't, you know, that for me was kind of not necessarily the everybody's making fun of it, but just like that's something like weird kids listen to or something, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess it maybe it all falls really nicely within the aphorism that we're kind of like all just living out high school for the rest of our lives. Right. And I would be hyped to live out high school for the rest of my life. Honestly, like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, so much of my work is like rooted in looking backwards and, and this like intense relationship with nostalgia. I mean, the, the, the Chris Cornell thing was tough because I, of course, um, that was unexpected. And I think, though I thought last year would, would prepare me for the unexpected death, um, the unexpected meaningful celebrity death, I, I was really jarred by Chris Cornell's death in a way that I wasn't expecting. Um, but I, I, I will say that I, I think um, I am also very enamored. You know, I love the present. I am thrilled uh, most days to be alive, even though um, I am also terrified most days. I am um, thrilled to, I don't know, I, I know too many people I love who are not here, right? And so because of that, I am thrilled most days to have breath with which to express the terror I feel. 
so I'm not saying let's all live in high school forever as a <laughs> as a firm artistic ethos, but I, I do think that there is value in nostalgia as a connection point, um, especially because I think nostalgia bridges cultural gaps in a way that sometimes the present lived life doesn't. I felt like I picked up on this theme throughout the Crown Ain't Worth much, this tension between kind of the way that these pop records and rap records and hip hop records and, you know, all these touchstones that are in the in the popular memory and that you're kind of playing with the lifestyle that they're sort of packaging versus like the lifestyle that you experienced. Right. Um, yeah. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about like, like the one that was really striking to me just from bringing my personal experience to it was all the gangbangers forgot about the drive by because like I had that kissing gold and I was just like, yeah, how did I never like just like this, you know, white girl in West Virginia, like I didn't, it was just a really eye opening, an eye opening thing for me, which sounds really lame, but then sounds affirmative to like the power of language in all of its forms. Yeah, so I think um, the song being This Is How We Do It, it's so fascinating that I remember writing that poem. I mean, that poem um, is based off of a, of a, of a thing that that is one of the things in the book that, that is very close to the truth, at least. Um, uh, a party being broken up, a block party. There used to be these block parties at Ohio State, uh, and they had to stop doing them because they got too violent. Um they were in the summer and people would, you know, shoot or fight. Um, but the, I, I think this is how we do it. You know, like it's a party song, right? It, on its face, it's just a song about a party. But there there are these things nestled in. The title comes from a line in the song, right? Um, you know, he's Montel Jordan's like describing the scene and he, he just drops in that line. You know, this is also a safe night because the gangbangers aren't doing drive-bys tonight. So we can be free tonight. We can be free in this little window of time um, because no one's shooting anyone. Uh, and I thought I, I, that resonated with me. I remember listening to the song again as an adult and thinking about what it meant to signal this this kind of small living freedom to say that. You know, I am I am at a party where I know no one's going to get shot because we have this small window of peace. Um, that's heavy. That's a lot. You know, to come from a place where um, block parties and outdoor parties in the summer were assumed, right? You go into them assuming that they're going to be broken up by something, by some fight. Somebody's going to have a gun. It is it is freedom to know that, you know, there is at least one violence you will not be subjected to. That's a small and beautiful type of freedom. And I really want to stretch that out through a poem. How are you feeling now? And I know that's a big question. (laughs) But, you know, I like I was I was deep in your back catalog while we were like, and, you know, there were there were these just few essays from 2015. You know, there's the uh, the piece for Pacific Standard about Marvin Gaye and the patriotism of resistance and in defense of Trap Queen as our generation's greatest love song. You have these lines that just like completely stop my heart where you're like every chance we have to sweat from anything other than more anxiety stretching wide into our bodies must be embraced. And I was just like fuck and it was 2015 like we had no idea i mean you know that's that's not true but yeah but it just feels like there at least was some optimism also in that time and still those reactions were possible so how how are you feeling right now in 2017 um i i am i am most days um trying for language as a window into something better than what it actually is happening, you know? Um, and some days I'm failing and those days are hard. Um, you know, I am an anxious, I'm, I'm a person who, who suffers from real, I'm anxious. I'm anxious all the time. You know, part of the reason why I am consistently diving into the minutia of, of pop songs is because it is a, a comfort for me. It is a way in which I cope, but, you know, it's it's been a it's been a tough year. I am afraid for. I, I don't. I, I, maybe I should be more afraid for myself than I am, but I am mostly afraid for my friends. I have friends who are um, 
you know, I have friends who are Muslim. You know, I was raised Muslim, so I have friends who are Muslim. I have friends who are trans. I have friends who are queer. I have friends who are, you know, living a life that puts them on the knife's edge of, of this particular administration. Um, and I don't know how to build a world um, large enough to keep them safe. And that is devastating. Um and on top of that, I am just, you know, consistently, you know, I, I moved back home recently and I am attempting to come to terms with what that that means, you know, what returning home means and um, the kind of isolation and loneliness that can come with, you know, feeling alone in Connecticut came with no weight for me because I was supposed to feel alone there. Um, it wasn't my home. Feeling lonely at home is a different kind of weight. It's a different type of machine, it, it, you know, um, that it holds you in its teeth a different way. And I'm trying to become okay with that again, you know, become okay with the, the isolation that, that, that exists there. And, and um, I mean, like I said, most days I'm, I'm thrilled to be alive to give life and space to all of these anxieties I have because there was a time in my life when these anxieties would have not, were, were, you know, not allowing me to do that. Um, and so I'm glad to be alive. Even, even when I'm afraid, um, I am happiest on the days that the fear allows me to, um, be productive, but, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a long answer to a short question, a short but good question of how I'm feeling. But I'm feeling all those things, and, and I'm still I'm still feeling thankful. I'm thrilled to be writing in this particular moment with so many people I love. I, I think that, you know, this era of American poetics is so thrilling, and I'm so excited to be, uh, you know, that one day I, I can be in, like, a textbook with, like, Nate Marshall or Jose Olivares or, you know, uh, Nabila Lovelace. I mean, these people are my friends. And I, I think that um, we are building an entire lineage of work and we're doing it together. We, I feel like we are really, um, you know, holding each other's hands, stepping onto the breach. You know, like I feel like we're really there. Um, and I feel like 20, 30 years from now, we're still going to be holding each other up. Uh, and, and I think that is something that feels like a real, co the first great cohort that is really going to see each other through to the end of this thing, whatever the end of it is. Um, you know, and that is thrilling for me. That is so exciting for me. And I get to, I mean, look, the, the truth is I get to talk about pop songs for a living. You know what I mean? Like I get to like write about pop music and like write about rap and like, people read it and I get to engage with people about it. And that is what, if you asked me at like 16, what I wanted to do while I'm like sitting in a restaurant, talking my friend's ear off about DMX or whatever, um, this is it. What are you working on right now? I have a chapbook coming out in like two weeks called Vintage Sadness. Um, unfortunately no one can get it. <laughs> it's sold out. It's, it was a limited edition. Big Lux put it out. It's a limited edition chapbook. Um, it's sold out. We did 500, we ran 500 copies and it sold out in like six hours. Oh, that's um, amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. It's, I'm con I feel conflicted about that too. I feel conflicted about literally all things. <laughs> I feel, you feel like limited I, edition is like, it should be like democratic for the people. Yeah, I wanted, I mean, in my head, I was like, I want to get back to my, like, punk roots. I mean, I came up, you know, on the, like, punk scene and, like, underground scene. I was like, and so I had this, like, you know, punk kids used to, like, push out zines and, like, only do, like, 30. And if you got it, you got it. And if you didn't, you'd have to hear about it from someone else. And people would, like, bootleg them. You know, people would, like, take them to Kinko's and just print them out. And the punk kids would hand them out. And so I wanted to get back to my punk roots and do this thing. Um Especially because Vintage Sadness is a there it's a collection of poems that was like mostly a writing exercise. It was the poems I wrote to get myself out of the grief I felt um, after writing The Crown Ain't Worth Much. I'm thankful to have that many people excited about my work. Um, but I do feel bad that 
I did not intend to make it so that people who wanted it couldn't access it. I think we may do like a, a, a release of like a PDF type thing. I also think it'd be really dope if people bootlegged it. I'd be think it'd be dope if people just like Xeroxed it and put it on Tumblr or something like that. That's also true to my punk roots. This is your opportunity to tell the people what you want them to do. With yeah, like literally, if you got a copy of Inner Sadness, like bootleg it in your neighborhood and like hand it out and like put it on the internet and don't charge any money for it at all. It should be free for the people. Um, so there's that. I have a collection of essays coming out uh, with $2 Radio in November um, called They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. Uh, it just, I just sent it off for... Um, I think I sent off what I hope is the final draft of it. Um, and I just got blurbs for it and I'm thrilled about the blurbs. The blurbs mean the world to me because I feel like on the crowning worth much. I asked people, I asked two people who I knew would say yes. Right. I asked like, you know, Terrence Hayes who had worked on some poems in the book in the workshop and like, is yes, a huge, I, I mean, Terrence Hayes is my one a influence period point blank but i knew he would say yes and ask e viewing who is literally my artistic collective partner and one of my best friends you know um so but they can't kill us until they kill us i wanted to take like really big swings on the blurb asks um and i did and, and everyone was like really cool about it um so that's that's in the pipeline um can you talk at all about what's what's in there or do you want to keep quiet about it until it comes no, out? I can talk about what's in there yeah so a lot of the essays are new um i didn't want to just like throw together a collected you know, stuff I have on the internet already. Um, so I wrote a bunch of essays. A lot of them are in the vein of what I usually write, um, connecting music and race and culture. But there's also some like, you know, weird sports essays. I wrote this essay about Ric Flair, uh, who's a wrestler I love, um, that like there's some stuff in there that would never get published anywhere else. You know what I mean? Like people would never publish. Like um, I have this like 6,000 word piece on fallout boy. Um, and how important they were to how in like viewing them through a lens of a friend of mine who, who loved them, who I learned to love them through, who committed suicide, um, that would never get published anywhere. Right. And so it's like, um, you know, I have this like open letter to cat power, um, uh, that I wrote on the anniversary of her, her album, the greatest. Um, and so there's stuff like that, that is kind of weird. Um, but a lot of it is, is kind of, um, you know, in the vein of, of this idea of reflecting on the past couple of years through the lens of, of music that I've loved. And I'm really excited about it. I was never planning on writing an essay book. Um, after a funny story about the essay book is that after the crown I worth much came out, um, a couple presses and people hit me up and were like, Hey, like, I think I've read yourself on MTV. Like, I think you'd be great for an essay book. Uh, in one press I did was $2 radio. Um, and I had heard of them because they're kind of like an indie, indie darling, you know, like people love their books and they're like, a, are they based in Ohio? They are. So this is wild. This is how I, this, but I had no idea. So sorry, I got very excited. Um, I had no idea. And I, I didn't, I had been like, and like everyone I talked to was like, wow, $2 radio is like a big deal. You know what I mean? They're like really cool people, like really love them. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not trying to do an essay book. And I emailed them kind of blowing them off. Like, you know, um, I, I can't lie. Like I emailed them and I was like, well, you know, crowning worth much is still really young. So like, let me give it like a, you know, six months and see where I come down on an essay book. And I was like, yeah, they'll forget about it and I'll forget about it. Um, and I, in a pal of mine, an old pal of mine is, was working for them is working for them now. Um, and he just lightly mentioned like, yeah, by the way, we're like based in Columbus, Ohio. And I was like sold instantly sold, right. To have a book, to have a book like made, in created a book that is like um on a press that has national exposure right um being made and crafted in columbus ohio just sold me instantly um and so it's it's this very like homegrown thing like everything about it is going to be from columbus and i'm so thrilled and so that's that's the next big release um i am working right now on a second full-length collection of poems um about distance and heartbreak and sadness and, um, you know, kind of, uh, learning to discuss sadness and grief without implicating other people. Talk to me about, I know this might be a little in flux cause you just moved, but what is sort of your daily writing setup situation? What is ideal for you? Well, I have a desk facing a window that faces, uh, a park in that park 
is a park with a lot of memories for me. It's Goodale Park. Um, and I can't, like, see the park from my window, clearly, but I know it's, it's the window's facing the park. Um, and that was important to me. When I set up my desk in my apartment, I was like, it has to face the direction of somewhere where I know that I've been loved or I know that I've, you know, had good moments. Um, that is another part of exiting the poem, right? Is that um, if I need to step back and look out of a window, I'm looking towards a place where I know that I was happy once. Um, not to say that I'm unhappy all the time, but I say, you know, I mean, like looking towards a place where um, I know there was joy. And and so, yeah, I, I have a I have a window facing a park. Do you write in the morning? Do you have a sort of strict schedule that you feel like you've identified when you do your best work? I wish there was a time of day when I, I could say I do my best work. I think that my best work comes to me at the most unfortunate times, right? When I'm driving or when I'm like halfway through a run at the gym. Uh, I think I do my best work internally. I do my best work mentally. And fortunately, because this is my process and has been for so many years, it's almost like I have a notepad, a brain notepad. Um, I, I think writing is somewhat of a physical act for me. I, I move around a lot. I I pace frantically. In my old apartment, like a couple apartments ago, there was like a ring in my office space, like a ring on the, on the carpet from where I had like walked in circles. Uh, my best ideas come to me while I'm in movement. It's why, you know, ideas come to me in the middle of a run or like, you know, I'm, I'm, when I'm in the act of moving, I think better. And so, yeah, it's not uncommon for me to like get halfway through a poem and then start frantically walking in circles around my apartment or it's not uncommon for me to, you know, get most of the way done with a poem and then agonize over the last line. And before you know it, I'm like cleaning dishes or scrubbing shoes that I know are clean. And that has to do also with my anxiety and and kind of wanting to return to something I know I'm good at, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. um, wanting to return to it. You know, I don't always believe I'm good at poems, but I know I can clean my shoes. So while I'm agonizing over the last line of a poem, it's nothing for me to just like, second nature even sometimes i don't even realize that i'm doing it until i'm like oh wait i've been scrubbing this shoe for 10 minutes uh and this poem isn't finished um so writing to me is a very physical act that sometimes um i don't realize i'm in it until i'm actually done what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now you know that's an interesting question that's a great question because i think um for me i am at my most satisfied now. This answer would have been different, like, I think even a year ago. Truth be told, no one, The Crown Ain't Worth Much did, I think, better than I think everyone thought it would. Even maybe Button, who is been great and has been supportive, but I think, like, you know, after after the first few months, I think every we were all kind of like, okay, this is like a real, you know, I wrote that thinking people in Columbus will love it and that's it. Um, and after those first few months, I think we were all kind of like, okay, this is like a, um, we're kind of rolling downhill now in a good way, right? Like not downhill, like, you know, downhill bad, but I mean, like we're the momentum is like pulling us. Uh, and so it took a lot for me to have to face, um, all the stuff that came with a that comes with a quote unquote successful poetry book or successful writing. And so now creative satisfaction for me looks like a, a secluded cabin with like five of my friends working on some stuff that maybe we won't that won't last a day, you know? I for Christmas for like two weeks um, leading up to Christmas and the week of Christmas, I went to Provincetown, Massachusetts, um, which is a beach town and a tourist town. And in the winter, no one's there. In the winter, the only people there are like the town drunks and the bar keeps we serve them. Um, and it got dark super early because it's on the edge of the on the edge of the U.S. It's on the edge of the you know states, um, eastern edge, northeastern edge. And so, you know, we get dark at like four fifteen. Um, and I just went there with uh, a notebook, my computer, some clothes, and that's about it. Um, and I just wrote a bunch of stuff that no one will ever see. I wrote stuff and didn't save it in Word. I wrote stuff and threw it away. I wrote stuff that I wrote about, you know, pop punk bands that no one cares about and just deleted when I was done. 
And that felt so satisfying. It felt satisfying again to write with myself as the only audience and to remind myself that I loved writing first because it was a way for me to get my thoughts out of my head and onto a place where I could look at them and say, these aren't too ridiculous after all. Maybe people can care about this. And even if they don't, you do. Visit us online at wmfapodcast.com to find links to some of the things we talked about today and to subscribe to the show and the WMFA newsletter, which includes episode notes and exclusive content. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Get in touch at hello at wmfapodcast.com or on Twitter and Instagram at wmfapodcast. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.